Welcome to The Author's Tale, a series of casual conversations with prominent New Zealand authors, presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. In parts one and two, we heard some of Christchurch-based author Kathleen Gallagher's tale. She talked about her plays, films, radio plays, and connections with New Zealand Māori and her spiritual connections. In this episode, Kathleen talks about her connection to the land and her most recent novel, Anangahua Gold. How you sort of get those feelings about places. I noticed when I was reading Anangahua Gold, and I read that last, so I read the poetry, I read the plays, the, um, I didn't read all of the Gallagher's of Conradin, but I had a good, good flick through it, obviously looking for those family connections <laughs> that we might be related to, would know. Um, but when I re- read through Anangahua Gold, um, what really struck me was I felt that it because obviously it's a novel, it's not based on f- fact, is it? It's purely fictional, or did you kind of base some of it on fact? <laughs> on old family heritage? Well, what happened is, before I did The Gallows of Cronin, and I worked on the first edition of that with my father, yeah. um, and that one there is the second edition of it. Yeah. Um, when I was 22, I was living in Wellington, and I um, found out that my great-auntie was still alive up in... Palmerston and that I hadn't been to see her well I'd seen her once when I was younger and I and she wasn't very well and I thought I'd go up and see her she was 96 wow, yeah. and I started um, interviewing her so I did eight tapes of interviews with her and that's the foundation of the Gallagher's mm. of Tronic Conradin because mm. she was able to piece everything together because at that stage mm. dad knew huge numbers of people that we related to but how it all fitted together mm. it didn't we didn't quite know you know yeah and she she cleared that up, and then also the Hippolytes in um, Nelson, they in Wakatu, they cleared the, they got the rest of it. You know, mm. we sort of got those, but I mean, there's probably yeah. still gaps. I'm sure yeah. there's gaps. Like, but anyway, but what happened is that she told me a whole lot of things, and she told me all these stories, and that's in the Gallagher's of Cronodon. Yeah. But under her, under her story, because she grew up in the goldfields, there was another story. And that took me 40 years to write, mm. and that's in Angahua Gold. Yeah. So it was the story un- inside her story? Yes, yes. You know, and yeah. she was an and amazing storyteller. And it's interesting because what I found, what I thought when I was reading it through, it felt to me like it was all of these bits that you've got all put together. Oh, that's fascinating. It, to me it was like um, we had... We had some of the poetry, we had some of Mother Tongue, we had some of the... We had just all of these bits of your... Your heritage, your where you had come from, your influences, were in the in Anangahua Gold with the characters. Oh, that's who they were, how they related to each other. Um, yeah, and I loved the end when um, Rewaka. No, what's the woman's name? The daughter, Joe. Uh, yeah. No, and the the older Maori woman and the and Murphy. He, but he then. He oh, Rorika. Rorika. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When they get together, but they recognise each other, even though they haven't seen each other for a very long time. They recognise each other in their eyes, you know, and it's and it's like it's like you're looking at yourself. Yes. But through the eyes of family members. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, that's right. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, so that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so that's and it was. Uh, I don't know why I chose to read it last. Well, it's right to read it last. Because yeah. it's not the last thing you've written. It's well, the most recent thing you've written. No, no, but it's the last novel that I've written. Like, it is yeah. the last novel that I've written. Because um, 
the Rohi Korepo Repo is is a book of um, is a collection of you know of interviews for the film. So it's not yeah. what I this is. No, Ananga Hua Gold is my last piece. It was the right thing to read last. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. but that's definitely, as, as I was reading it and I was thinking, this is so funny. It's like all of these, everything has sort of come together. Um, and maybe it's because I also myself have a, you know, my, uh, as I've told you, I have this family history as well on the coast with the gold mining, you know. And um, Well, it's amazing going to the coast, isn't it? Because oh. I just sort of, when I go over the mountain, I, I just sink into it, you know, like I, I just... yeah. And, well, and, I always feel like I'm being swallowed. And it's hard for me to take myself out of it. Mm. And when I used to go and interview Auntie Mary Crowley, like she was Mary Gallagher and she yeah. became Crowley, and it's like I, I fell inside a world and there was this whole world and I fell inside it. And, <laughs> and this other world that was going on, you know, yeah. was another world, but this is the other world. And yeah. that's what I think I've grown up with. I've grown up with all these worlds. Yeah, yeah. And... And, you know, um, yeah, they're, they've got their own, you know, they've all got their own delights yeah, <laughs> and their own agonies yeah. and their own pain. And, yeah. um, you know, and I think that some people think there's only one world, but they don't right. realise that there's another world yeah. and another world. And when I started travelling around the marae, like when I was young, I I went to different marae around here. But when, when I was... Um, when I was at university, I was in the University Māori Club, and I went up to um, to the big marae, um, mm. you know, at Narua Wahia. Yeah. And I was on there, we were on there for, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks or something, and we didn't come off. I don't know, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure how long it was, but I came off and I felt like I'd, it was the same as being with Auntie Mary, it's like I'd actually fallen inside another world, and it was it was the world up there, Naru Wahia. It was the yeah. Waikato, and yeah. I didn't because I hadn't been exposed to Waikato mm. like um, very much, and um, so it was like I'd fallen inside another world, mm. and I felt like I'd been on there for months. When I came off after weeks, I felt wow. like I'd been there for months, <laughs> and I was thinking in Māori, yeah, but. It, I was thinking in Waikato Māori, not because yeah. I'd grown up around Naitahu and Ngātipurau yeah. and, yeah. you know, different, but I was thinking inside Tainui and, you know, and, and it was a different, it was another world, yeah. like, and so, you know, it's sort of like when you go into, when you walk onto Marae, mm. you go and you're walking out of this, this sort of mainstream sort of, I don't know, sort of, Western European world or something mm. and even when you go into a Catholic church you're walking out yeah. of it you walk out of it yeah. and you're walking into another world world yeah you know and I and I grew up walking in and out of them like because yeah. we were sort of wandering in and out of all these worlds <laughs> yeah. and when I walk on the beach and when I see the mountains it, everything makes sense mm. on this island mm. let's listen to part of Kathleen's novel Anangahua Gold here in chapter 11 we join the main character, Rauraka, as she guides the Irishman Murphy and the newly arrived Englishman Pepper as they walk across the unique landscape of the Southern Alps. Parairai. Te Tiri Tiri o te Moana, 1857. Away from the top of the rock face, Rauraka decides to sit, take a rest and eat kai. The kahu continues to tug her toward Tetihi, but she resists for this time and sits to rest on the rock. 
Pepper and Murphy find another big rock. Rodeka sits very still without moving her body. She moves only her eyes. Which direction is the wind coming from? She notices the cloud contains large amounts of moisture. It is dark on the underside and dark on top. The gulls are flying in a group shaped like an arrow away from the ocean. She feels the northeasterly direction of the wind. She sees the snowy white caps of the mountains of the Southern Alps. Her ancestress Rorika, who first crossed these mountains, climbed from the head of Arahura River to the east side of the Southern Alps. On the east coast, she came on a group of Naitahu, carving a canoe with basalt adzes. She drew a piece of punamu from her clothing and cut the wood of the canoe. The Naitahu group were in awe of the sheer cutting ability of the punamu, and of its beauty. Pepper and Murphy are settled on the rock near her, eating partly dried eel and sipping from their water bottles. Pepper feels the wind chill; his bones grow cold. The immensity of these mountains is unbelievable. This spot gives a stunning view of the mountain peaks, but he doesn't have a head for heights. It is as if he is inside someone else's dream. Maybe it is a dream. He is a foreigner travelling through the mountains, with a Maori princess and an Irish scholar gypsy. He pinches himself to remind himself where he is, and that he and these mountains and these companions are real. Murphy looks across at Rodeka. She has long, wavy, shiny black hair. She has dancing green-brown eyes. She sits tall on the rock. Murphy looks above her. The cloud is breaking up. The sky is clearing, and the sun shining through. There is a magnificent view of the peaks of the Alps in every direction. The kahu is not circling above them. Maybe the kahu got sick of them sitting still in one place, contemplating the mountains, and just wants them to be up and on their way. He walks over and offers Rodeka a piece of eel. She looks up from her reverie and accepts the kai. Before they know it, the kahu is back and on their case, diving and landing very close to where they sit. Pepper covers his head with his arms. Rodeka knows they are high up on the pass. The sun is high in the sky. She can see that Murphy would like to stay here with the mountains all around and reflect a little, take it all in. But Rodeka knows this is no place to stop. They are resting on a thin ridge. Up ahead of them, a massive scree slope drops away. Murphy and Pepper pack up and follow her across the ridge to the scree slope. Pepper looks in horror at the mountain of round, grey, white stones cascading down from the sky and into space below, as if it has no beginning and no ending. There is no obvious pathway through. There is no place to cross here. Why did you take us this way? Murphy begins to reply. You chose. But stops himself. Pepper wonders what on earth got into him to have contemplated climbing these great mountains. These Southern Alps are so utterly unlike anything he has ever known, and now this. A huge cascade, a mountain of stones to negotiate, 
and he utterly dependent on the goodwill of that Irish scoundrel Murphy and that Māori servant Rorekka, who refuses to speak English to him. He shivers in his boots. I did not suggest we traverse a mountain of shingle, retorts Pepper. Murphy sighs. Do you wish to return, Pepper, the way we have come? But Pepper turns away from Murphy. He has no wish whatsoever to return the way they have come. He fully intends to cross this pass, and Murphy knows it. Murphy squats down near Rorekka at the side of the scree slope. They must now make their way across the pass, slowly and carefully, watching where they place each foot. They talk on softly to each other in Māori, gesturing at odd plants and bits of scrub among the cascading stones on the scree slope. He would never mix with either of them in civil society, so whatever occurred to him to think that it would be fine to tramp across these mountains with them, he doesn't know. But then he reflects. There was nobody else prepared to accompany him. Me fiti mato, announces Rodeka. We will cross, Murphy informs Pepper. Me hikoe tato mai tene rakau, ite ki tene rakau ite, says Rodeka. We will walk from one small bush to another small bush, Murphy says. Māori feels a strangely commanding type of language to Pepper. Do this, do that, all the time this and then that, this and then that. And then what, he wonders. You would think they own this place. Goa e titiro kiraro. Don't look down to the crevices below. Metitiro ki o tato tapuai anake. Look only at our footprints. Rureka calls. Herea ki o koto hope kiau. Murphy hears Rureka. He instructs Pepper. Tie this rope firmly around your waist. He ties the rope around his waist and throws Pepper the rope. More directions. Pepper grimaces. Pepper doesn't catch the rope. Rureka catches it. She goes to him and, lifting his pack a little, ties the rope firmly around his waist. She then ties the end of the rope around her own waist. Pepper feels strangely comforted by this act of kindness and somehow is able to go on. Because we have a very different perspective here on the east coast looking up at those mountains to the perspective on the west coast looking up at those mountains. When the mountains are right there in front of you on the Mm. west coast, there is no getting away from them. They are right there and they are this awesome backdrop to everything you do. But they also make me feel like they totally tell me where my place in the world is. I think, yeah, I think that's so critical, isn't it? And I'm just simply one of millions and millions of particles of this world, you know, and I'm, I'm... you know, but it's and it's way bigger than me. What goes on is way bigger than me. You know, and I just I think that's the thing with those, those mountains are vast and they're awesome, in that extreme use of the word, if you know what I mean. I think that's right, and I think that's the gift they give to us who dwell here. Yeah, you know yeah. that, and so that's why nowhere else really makes any sense. Yeah. You know, um, because mm. they put everything in perspective mm, mm. and I used to think sometimes like when I was living in these other cities that I'd lived in yeah. places that these 
they, people didn't have a sense of proportion mm. of who we were. But yeah. but when my son Kieran went, he went over on a field uh, on a AFE scholarship or some scholarship scholarship to a Rotary scholarship to um, Argentina, mm. and he lived in Buenos Aires, and he travelled, you know, with their groups. They went anyway. He came home, and we asked him to see all his photos, and he showed us all his photos, and. He had about three or four photos of Buenos Aires, and all the rest were mountains. <laughs> and they were different mountains, all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. They're amazing mountains. But he'd seen the mountains. Yes, yes. You see, and that's what happened yes. to me in Peru. I saw the mountains, mountains you see. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, I could live yeah. here. Because this is wow. like Lima's like a, it's like a mirror, like yeah. with the Andes, like, it's like a mirror city wow. of Christchurch. Yeah. And, and you see, and so I think that's what it is about this mm. island. It's mm. sort of like, Anywhere, mm. everything is settled yeah. by this. It's it's huge. That They're huge. huge, and they they settle everything, you know. Yeah. And they move, you know. And they're breathing, <laughs> and they're glowing, and you know they're doing all sorts of things. And they've got a different time frame, you know. Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, to to work with the stuff, even the stuff that's happening at the moment, you know, the the COVID and the Ukraine and all that stuff. You need to really think like a mountain and. <laughs> When I'm here, I can. Yeah. When I'm here, when I'm at, with the ocean, or when I'm up the mountain, I can think yeah. like the mountain. And how else do you manage? Yeah. You know, really, yeah. I don't know. No, I don't know either. But yeah, I really, you can, you can get that sense through your writing. You can see all of that, you know, and how, what a huge influence the environment is on you. Yeah, I, th I think it influences everybody that yeah. writes, but... I think some people don't notice. Yeah, I think you're right. But they you don't, notice it. They don't notice what it's doing. Yeah. They don't notice that that you know she's active. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, and I think you know, maybe after our earthquakes, we're probably more aware of that now. We know that this, but this is fluid. What we live on is simply fluid. Yeah, it is, there is nothing solid underneath our feet at all. Yeah, and it's also mm. that when you know, like when I'm looking at a tree. Mm. Yeah, she's looking at me. Yeah. When I go down to the to the river and I look at the river, she's looking at me, yeah. and I'm looking at her. And it's yeah. sort of like this, um, you know. And really, I think I did a lot of walking. Um, you know, we did a lot of walking with our dad by the ocean, and I think he taught us that that yeah. all the time. It was um, yeah. There's this yeah. It's a very it's yeah. a living presence, like mm. it's not, you know, like mm. you can't. And then, and the, the wonderful thing for us as a reader is that we can then, you know, you're able to observe that and put it down into a written form for us to then, you know, acknowledge and to see it. Oh, and then that's right. And then you can be surprised, and yeah. then and you can notice. And, and notice you go, things. Yeah, you're, you're right. And <laughs> you go, wow. Yeah. You know, like you know. And it's so. Mm. Um, it's neat when people are surprised. I like mm. that. Like I like it when people watch. They watch a film, or yeah. they that I done, or something, or yeah. they, you know, see a play, and they yeah. go, they go, oh wow, you yeah. know. And I'm thinking, yeah, it yeah. is wow. <laughs> I, I have to say, I thought Tiffany O'Regan's comment here at the beginning of Anangahua Gold was was gold. Actually. Oh, okay. What is so that? he says. Kathleen Gallagher's writing offers an exuberant and evocative sense of a West Coast world that she clearly loves. Only love could sense the sounds and smell of wet bush so sensitively painted here. She draws on the extraordinary historical mix of ethnicity, culture, religion and gender which frames the older history of Tai Ti Tai Putini and constructs an intimate human mosaic. Her story is fiction which gives truth to place, her sense of place 
gives truth to the fiction. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that is accurate. I like the um, sentence of John Weir's too. John Weir's okay. about the tough or something. Is what it's on the say? back page, on the back, on the back cover. The top, but what does he say? This historical novel set in the nineteenth century plats together tough as a flax root narrative prose and poetic imagery to tell a timeless love story. Yeah, I yeah. liked it. <laughs> I liked it too, and I did love the way that when I was reading it, um, all of yeah, and I noticed that the weaving that the that the Maori guide is doing constantly, she's causing him to replace her her footwear so she can walk the next leg of the journey for this incredibly obnoxious Englishman. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I was actually really pleased he didn't make it. <laughs> Well, it's, I thought, well, he kind of deserved it, you know. But it's um, sort of like, it's also the story of how people migrate. Yeah. Because some people migrate in one way and other people yeah. migrate in another way. And some people have such trouble migrating, you wonder why they did the trouble. But other people come here and it's like, it was the place that they were meant to be. Yeah. You know, and yes. it's, so it's a, different, it's a difference of migrating, you know, because yeah. I think some people come here and they know this mount, they know these mountains. Yeah. That it's where yeah. they meant to, you know, and yeah, it's just totally. sort of like how you, you know, and, and it's also how he, even the, even how the English guy, he starts to get woven, he starts to Well, weave. that's the thing, it's, his unfor- the unfortunate thing about his demise is that he had just suddenly, it had started to click with him, Yeah, that he was part of a bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't all about him. And also that his spirit, you know, he, he, underst- he started to understand what it was, that, you know, that people here, they didn't, you know, they didn't have to yell and they didn't have to tell people what to do, mm. that that it's all right that they're respectful. Yeah. You know, that because they're not disrespecting other people, yeah. they're respecting this place. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of like that. And so that's mm. the learning yeah. in it, isn't it? Yeah, it's it sort is. Of like, um, you know, and I guess that that's what, yeah, that's, that's how it is for when people come. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... Let us rejoin Roreka, Pepper and Murphy as they continue to negotiate their way across the Southern Alps. Murphy walks out across the scree slope with Pepper following. Roreka brings up the rear. Murphy digs each foot into the slope of smooth round stones, etching out a foothold as he does so. Pepper follows Murphy and places his foot in every spot where Murphy has placed his. He concentrates with all his might on the footstep in front, on staying on the mountain, as if the mountain itself might rise up and throw him off. He walks as if he is in a tussle with the mountain regarding who has the right to exist. He daren't look down the slope. Murphy delights in the hugeness and wonder of the mountain and rises to the challenge of finding the best way across the treacherous slope. He looks up and down and all around, carefully picking his way through the mountain of stones. Rodeka follows lightly behind Pepper, using their footholds and sometimes creating a new spot if the old one is too damaged. She walks surely and lightly across the slope, taking notice of where her feet fall and walking with the mountain as if the mountain were a living, breathing being. Murphy reaches the first small bit of scrub and is joined by the other two. They rest briefly. He moves on across the scree slope, carefully choosing each foothold. Once Pepper loses his footing, 
The other two pull him up straight away and get him settled and back on the track of footsteps that Murphy is creating as he goes. At the next bit of scrub, Pepper sips a little water and settles himself. At midday, Murphy reaches the far side of the scree slope. He looks back and sees Pepper walking carefully, placing one step heavily in front of the other, puffing and panting his way across the slope. Rodeka walks deftly in her thick flax sandals, as if it's the sort of thing you might love to do on a good day. Stroll across a scree slope with snow-peaked alps surrounding you. She has made this journey every summer ever since she can remember. She sees Murphy up ahead. She is aware that he understands about this journey through difficult places. He understands you let these places grow on you, in you, slowly but surely. Murphy watches her, attentive to the mountain itself. He thinks to himself, it takes a hold of you a place like this. I can see how she would want to return again and again. He returns his smile with a twinkle in his eye. Strangely, he feels utterly at home here in these steep, snow-peaked mountains. He would like to become how she is with this scree slope. Careful, thoughtful, light-hearted and deft. They reach him. He pulls out three bits of dry deal. Rodeka pulls fern root from her pack. They stop briefly and nibble. Then they are up and off again. Murphy keeps the lead and Rodeka follows behind Pepper as they wind down through the rocks away from the scree slope. She keeps a good eye on Pepper and how he was moving down and along this side of the ridge. She knows this part of the track like the back of her hand. She looks below and up and all about, watching for birds and feeling for wind currents. There is a gentle breeze blowing from the northwest. She knows the wind will rise as the afternoon progresses to a hot, very strong nor'wester. But by then, they will be off the ridge and down the other side. You've been listening to part three of The Author's Tale with Christchurch author Kathleen Gallagher. Readings from her novel Anangahua Gold were done by Zara Ballara and Drew Noble. You can obtain copies of Kathleen's novel Anangahua Gold from Kathleen's website wickcandle.co.nz or all good booksellers. Join me next time for part four of The Author's Tale where we will conclude our time with Kathleen Gallagher. The Author's Tale is produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. It's engineered at Plains FM and is made with assistance from the Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Scheme.